everyone. It is Tuesday morning. Right now, uh, you're probably taking your first exam uh, while I'm recording this, so good luck. Or I, I hope the exam went well by the time you by the time you watch this. We're starting um, kind of part two of the course, as it were, uh, beginning to discuss this book, American Pandemic. Uh, hopefully, you already have the book. If you do not have the book, uh, you are in luck. If you go to the library.wingate homepage, type in American Pandemic, you should be able to see the book right there and download it as a PDF full text. Now, I will say if you're, um, if you're home right now, if you're not connected to a Wingate server, um, then you might have to put in some login information just so the system knows that you're a Wingate student. So you can then, of course, gain access to these materials. Um, but I, I think it's unlimited download, so everyone in the class should be able to do this. In the event you don't have the book, I'm going to say it right now. I know texts are expensive. You want to spend your money on other things, but I think it's much better to have the text in hand um, than it is to uh, to have the book as an ebook. But again, that's a decision that you you can certainly make for yourself. What are we doing now? Like, what's what's happening now? The first part of the course, we were exposing you to some basic concepts of political science things that anyone leaving a, any kind of political science course might want to know um, or should know uh, about uh, about politics. And so the first part of the class was sort of giving you the tools to learn more information as you wanted to learn more information about political systems. This last kind of two thirds of the class, we're going to look at two case studies, one on the Spanish flu epidemic um, in the early 1900s. And then the second about the Chernobyl explosion um, in, uh, in Ukraine, well, it, at the time it was the Soviet Union, but in modern day Ukraine in Chernobyl in 1986. The purpose for these case studies is in part because it is trying to show sort of how, you know, this moment that we lived through the, for the past year, the role that kind of science and health and policy and politics, how these things all blended together were things that were not new, okay? Like, in other words, this pandemic was not new in the sense that we've had pandemics before. The fact that politicians had to respond to it was not new because politicians have had, have had to respond to these things before. The way we tried to attack or approach this pandemic is not new because we've had to try to do that before. And so what these two books will do, The American Pandemic and Midnight Chernobyl, is demonstrate the relationship between what we might call health outcomes or the, the healthiness of a, of a society or a community or of a nation even, and uh, the, the relationship to politics, you know, decisions that politicians and political leaders and political actors had to make in order to accomplish, um, you know, the, the, the goal of trying to, to help people, you know, from, from harm. This COVID pandemic in the United States alone has killed over 600,000 people. It's just an astonishing number. Um, and, uh, and we like to think that this has not happened before, and it has. Okay. Um, and some of the same mistakes that we made in the early 1900s, we made now. And some of the same kind of solutions or efforts that we tried in the early 1900s, we tried this time some with better success, some with less success. But really what we're discussing, like the core of what we're doing with these next two books is demonstrating the relationship between 
in this case, health outcomes and political leadership, um, political decisions, policies, and then how people reacted to those policies. So there are just going to be some things we read, some passages we read that you're going to say, oh my gosh, this is exactly what happened in 2021, but instead it happened in 1917 or 1918. Okay. All right. So let's begin by talking about the book. And what we'll do is we'll take this in two parts today. We will, you know, go through, I don't know, maybe parts one through three, parts one through four, and then we will take a break and return and, and do part, uh, the second part um, uh, at the at the halfway point of the lecture. American Pandemic, Part 1, Family Genealogy. The very first part of this chapter details uh, a story about the Bristow family. And essentially what you had happened is what happened to many young people in, uh, in during what was known as the Spanish flu pandemic of 1917, 1918, and 1919. And essentially we have a young child who loses pretty much their entire family and they're orphaned um they they are they are you know raising themselves effectively and this little vignette into this bristow family is a story that is not um terribly uncommon in this time period that someone would lose everyone close to them because of this nasty terrible flu epidemic over 50 million worldwide deaths occurred um, during this pandemic. About the same number, similar numbers, we don't exactly, I mean, the problem with describing exactly how someone dies, right, is, is a bit of a, can be a bit of a tricky one, but something between half a million, probably more, 750 million, maybe a million Americans, right, depending on how exactly the counting occurs, uh, and given that we didn't have, you know, kind of modern um, uh, data keeping the way we do now, uh, close to a million deaths in the United States alone. And so the, the reason this is um, such a big deal is, of course, the loss of life is a big deal, but the United States was a much smaller country then than it is now. So a million deaths is a, is a greater fraction of the, of the population, a greater percentage of the population than 650,000 deaths of 330 million people, 350 million people as occurred in, in, in 2021. This is not to, um, to mitigate or to try to, to, to understate, you know, the loss of life in 2021 compared to 20, uh, compared to 1917, 1918, 1919. Um, every, every life is precious, right? Um, it's just to kind of put into context that the, the percentage that fraction is much greater in the 1917, 1918, 1919 than it would be in 2021, just because of the size of the U.S. and the size of the world by comparison. Mm -hmm. The Spanish flu, and we'll talk more about the Spanish flu itself on, on Thursday in the second chapter. The Spanish flu is a profound disruption. Second wave morbidity surpassed 25%. So this means that for every person that contracted it, a quarter of those people would die during the second wave. If you remember this from COVID-19, basically waves of the pandemic were stages where there were spikes, then it would drop or plateau, and then it would spike again. That second spike is what we call the wave. So if you think to last year, um, there were large spikes that occurred sort of beginning in March, April, 
even into May. It begins to plateau starting at the end of May through June, July, August, and then it spikes up again in September and October, and then in November and December and January, just an incredible spike in uh, not only infections, but in death as well. So this is what we mean by waves. In the Spanish flu, because it lasted three years, there were actually three waves. We are hopeful, we are really, really hopeful that COVID is behind us and that there isn't a third wave. Um, and I know we're totally optimistic, you know, I know we're really optimistic about this because, um, we're, you know, there's very little masking now and numbers haven't gone up and lots of people are vaccinated. So we're feeling pretty good. You know, the real test will be what happens in September and October when we're back inside, when you have a traditional kind of flu season that occurs as well and what those spikes might look like. But we're crossing our fingers that we're in a good spot now compared to where they were in 1917, 1918, 1919, when there were literally three waves in the Spanish flu went on for almost three full years. What's interesting about the Spanish flu compared to, you know, typical flus? Um, in your text, it actually, I think it shows you what this looks like, and I'll turn to that page so you can see it. Yeah, this is on page five, if you want to look at this yourself. A traditional flu season is... Um, uh, U-shaped. And what we mean by that is that in a typical flu season, the, the morbidity rate or the people that will perish from the flu, a typical flu season now is anywhere from 20 to 40,000 people are going to die from the flu. Um, again, it's tragic, but not nearly the numbers that we saw with COVID. Um, a U-shaped uh, pandemic means that the youngest in the population and the oldest in the population are going to suffer most, okay? Now, if we compare this to COVID-19, it was not a U-shape at all. We are so fortunate. Um, I mean, COVID could have been so much worse had young people contracted this disease the way older people did. And so essentially, rather than a U-shape that we see with the traditional flu, COVID-19 was a just a, a sort of a line that slowly rose as we got older. So for example, you know, I'm, I'm 39, I'll be 40 this year, compared to most of you sitting out there who are in, who are 19, 20, 21, you know, if, if I contracted COVID, I would have, just based on my age, a slightly higher chance of death than you would at 19 or 20. Again, this is discounting like what they call comorbidities, you know, things that contribute to death other than COVID. Um, but if, some, if someone my parents' age, someone, you know, close to their 70s, then the morbidity rate raises. And then our grandparents or great-grandparents' age, maybe in our 80s or 90s, then the morbidity rate goes again. So, again, a traditional flu is the youngest and the oldest are affected. This didn't fortunately happen with COVID. So we have the youngest are barely affected. You know, my, my kids were probably in the safest, you know, um, age range you could possibly be in you know, because they were young, you know, preteens. But then as we get into teenage years and get to college, it starts to just go up just a little bit, 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 bit. And then when we get to your 50s or 60s, it really begins to go up. The Spanish flu was shocking because it was a W-shaped curve. All right. And what did that mean? It meant the young were really infected, like kids, children were really infected. Sorry affected. I'm saying affected. It sounds like infected, but I'm saying affected. We're really affected. And then as you got a little bit older, it wasn't as a, a big deal for you. 
But then as you get into your middle age, it spikes back up. And then it goes down a little bit. And then as you get older, it spikes back up again. So it's this really strange curve that does not fit in with the traditional flu, which affects on the, on the ends, the youngest and the, the oldest. It instead affects the young and then again, and then it affects middle age, people kind of my age, then it drops back again. And then it affects people that are older and it keeps going up. So this is, um, this is a scary pandemic because it is not the traditional way that flus were supposed to occur. So one of the things you heard often during the during COVID-19, which there, there was a lot of truth to this, is that, look, you know, young people are probably okay to be in school because not only are they not contracting it, but they're, they're probably not passing around either, at least what we thought we knew about it. So as long as there's some distancing, as long as there's some masking, we don't think like an elementary school will be a super spreader type event. But we have to protect people that are in their 40s or 50s or 60s and, and above because the morbidity rate is higher as we get older. And so one of the early concerns about schools, for example, is not so much we were worried about kids themselves, but could kids pass it to a faculty member, right? This was the big concern. And at the end of the day, we think that schools probably weren't super spreader events, right? Just to, just to um, discuss that. But things like churches, for example, where there are a lot of people um, in their 50s and above, a lot of churches made, you know, some tough decisions to shut down, to close down. Um, and I know in some states, the states forced this issue as well, but because the morbidity rate for people in their 50s and 60s was so high that even something like distancing and masking maybe was not sufficient to, um, or I should say this, the fears of the disease were so great that not even masking or distancing could alleviate people's concerns about, about COVID. But long story short, Spanish flu, W-shaped. It affected the old, it affected the middle age, and it affected the youngest. All right. One other big piece to this, one other huge piece to this is World War One. This pandemic raged during a global conflict that millions of soldiers were involved in. All right. At the end of the day, more people would perish from the Spanish flu than would perish from World War One. Okay by a factor of like, I think 30 or something. Um, significant, significant um, loss of life uh, that occurred from the Spanish flu. And of course, of World War I as well. But what happened in World War I is the disease is circulating, right? It's circulating through soldiers and barracks. It's, it, when we talk about the origin of the Spanish flu, you'll, you'll find a little bit more about how it, where we think it first started. It's circulating in Europe. It's circulating in, uh, in Asia, it is circulating in parts of Africa, it is circulating in South America and North America, it is circulating as people are moving and going from place to place. And so the Spanish flu would leave really not many places untouched, um, just simply because of the movement and the motion that was occurring in the world at that time. All right. The research question of the book, though, the takeaway from this book, and, um, and maybe this is where we'll take our first break and uh, and then do part two is why has this disruption and 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 loss of life been largely ignored now here's what i'll say in response to this this book and there's a second book about the about the spanish flu as well is getting more and more circulation now right more and more people are interested in this topic because of what happened the past year all right 
But ask yourself this question. Prior to COVID-19, how much time in your high school or even at Wingate have you spent discussing the Spanish flu? Now, maybe you had an exceptional history teacher and you had a whole thing about this where you talked in depth about the Spanish flu. I can tell you from my high school experience and from my experience in college, the Spanish flu was simply not something we discussed very much. Despite how disruptive and profound this disease was during this time period, 50 million people died, way, way more people than had died in World War I. And yet, I didn't know a lot about this until just, you know, a couple of years ago and just sort of doing my own sort of research. Secondly, what can this pandemic tell us about the history of public health and our interaction with it? And this is the political science question part of this, right? I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know about disease. I can't explain to you exactly what the Spanish flu does in a technical sense versus what COVID does in a, in, a, in a really technical sense. I can give you the broad strokes. What I can do in my capacity as a political science professor is connect the sort of public health community, which is this political community, a, a sort of bureaucracy, to this problem that was occurring. How people perceive public health community, how people perceive doctors, how people perceive nursing, how people perceived um, their politicians at that time how people perceived the local um, public health apparatus that were trying to help people um, in relation to this particular thing. And so one of the, the fascinating things about this text that I think you'll find out is that so much of what we tried and, and recommended and begged people to do during 2020 and 2021 are the very same things or some of the very same things they tried in 1917 and 1918. And in much the same way, people like they did in 2020, had a lot of pushback on it. And so that's the kind of interesting political science-y sort of thing for me is this relationship between these health outcomes and wanting to get people better and the role that the quote-unquote government and the bureaucracies play in all of this. Let's take our first break. When we return, we'll talk about the Russian flu first. Part two of the beginning of American pandemic. Let's just make this full screen, make it a little larger. All right, let's talk about the Russian flu first. The Russian flu predates the Spanish flu by about uh, 20 or so years, I suppose. And the reason we have to talk about the Russian flu first, the reason that it's not just because the book talks about it, but because the Russian flu sort of sets up um, this um, concern among American public health advocates. Between 1889 and 1890, there's something that occurs called the Russian flu. Public reaction to this is pretty understated, not initially concerned, but as it is spread from the U.S. Uh, um, from Europe to the U.S., that changes. Um, in the late 1800s, business and commerce throughout the East and West Coast is affected. And so what this 1889-1890 flu exposed was the severe limitations of public health infrastructure and knowledge about disease. So what's the point of this? There's this pretty bad flu. It doesn't kill near as many people as the Spanish flu does, but it's enough to get people kind of thinking about, hey, this, this shut down commerce, this shut down business, this isn't good. Like, let's set aside for a moment 
the fact that people are dying. Yeah. They're saying we can't function the way we want to function. We can't go to work. We can't have jobs. We can't have the supplies we need. We can't have the product that we want. All right. Because this is inhibiting our ability to do our jobs. And so this moves the American government and localities to begin to think about something called a public health infrastructure. What does that mean? It means a group of people or a body of people that are devoted to making your community healthy, right? This is now, you know, pretty much um, a standard of, of any community, you know, a health center or a, or a community health structure of some kind where you can go and do things like get some basic vaccinations, where you can go and get, you know, information about, um, uh, disease or information about, you know, you have a child and you want to know, like, what's the, what should I do? What's the best thing to do to, to raise a child? You can go to the public health infrastructure, to do that, or your community health organization to do that. Um, you know, things like sexually transmitted diseases, the Union County Public Health um, Center, you know, keeps track of things like that, of diseases that are circulating in the community. When you go and get a, like a typical, like test for a flu. So let's say you go to Walgreens, you're feeling kind of fluey, this is long before, you know, COVID, they document that flu test and they send it to the public health organization in their, in their town or their community or their county, because they want to keep track of diseases that are circulating around the community. That is what occurs now. That was not true in 1890. So what happens is, is they um, begin to sort of build up the expertise, the knowledge, and also the actual places that either someone or something or a doctor or an expert can go to and begin to kind of collect information and help people as it pertains to keeping communities safe and healthy. And as you know, if you've seen, um, you know, morbidity trends like throughout history, basically from the beginning of mankind through like the late 1800s, people are dying around the age of 40 and 50. I mean, you know, it, it changes depending on where we are, but like, People are dying from disease. They're dying from war. You know, people aren't living into their 80s and 90s with regularity until things like public health infrastructure, vaccines, all right, come onto the stage. And that begins to occur in the early 1900s. And by the 1950s, 1960s, we start to see morbidity rates, you know, plummet and, you know, life expectancies raise considerably. And this is in large part due to these things that are occurring in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And we'll see the effect of those things by the 50s and 1960s. Well, here's the first thing. All right, let's start here. What is disease? All right. One of the big problems and big challenges that um, that folks had in the late 1800s and, and even through the Spanish flu is sort of understanding disease. We have the rise of what we now know as germ theory, right? That there are these tiny you know, minuscule microscopic things that we can't see that we, we don't know exist, but they are transmitting harms to us. They are transmitting, you know, viral loads and disease to us. We now pretty much accept germ theory, right? We, we pretty much accept that um, certainly one of the way, one of, one of the ways that disease can transmit is through these tiny microscopic things that we can't even see. But the major competitor at the time was something known as miasma theory. And miasma theory was the idea, and, it, and it, it goes into more detail in the text, but that basically harm was caused by breathing in sort of dirty particulates. 
So think about how we now understand allergies, right? That there's like things in the trees. And if we ingest or inhale those things, like they can, you know, make our nose run and something like that. That's a version of miasma theory. All right. Except now we sort of know or have an understanding of, of allergies and how that works. And the allergies and germ theory are two different things, right? And really, our understanding of allergies is not really related to miasma theory. Miasma theory is really this idea that there's like decay in the earth. And as we ingest this decay, it makes us unwell. Um, why are we talking about this? We're talking about this just to demonstrate that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we are still wrestling with the causes of disease. When COVID was most scary, right? And say whatever you want to say, there were moments in time where this disease was really scary. It was most scary when we didn't really have a full understanding of how you contracted it, right? It's why we went from wearing gloves in the grocery, uh, grocery store to washing our hands frequently to wearing masks, right? Because there weren't exactly sure transmission and how that was happening. We now have a pretty good understanding of how transmission happens close spaces, close by, inhaling or ingesting the disease, right? But we didn't exactly know that at the time, all right? So there was a lot of sort of scattershot approaches to understanding how this disease exactly, you know, was transmitted between people. You look at any kind of scary moments in history from disease, like I, I can remember, you know, as a child, HIV AIDS, and, you know, that disease was scary initially, and it, and it, right, it, it's still... Um, you know, a disease with, without a, well, there are better medicines now than there were, but the, the point is there wasn't a, a full knowledge of contracting that disease and what that meant and what that looked like. All right. And so there was a lot of fear mongering related to HIV and AIDS simply because there, there, there was some bad knowledge out there. Um, and people weren't fully aware of how you contracted, how you were protected from, from that disease. All right. We have hereditary explanations for disease. You know, you're more likely to get, you know, the flu if you're, you know, uh, if your parents got the flu or something like that. We certainly know that there are hereditary explanations for certain ailments. We now know this because we understand genetics and we understand things like that. They didn't understand that at the time. And so really this hereditary explanation is sort of throwing darts at the dartboard to try to figure out make something stick. Until recently, we knew disease only by symptoms. Today, we know them by causes. Again, even reflecting back on um, COVID-19, our initial understanding of COVID-19 was related to symptoms, but not always the cause. And that's why there was this real scattershot approach initially about what it meant for you to have COVID. So if you remember, you know, think back to March, 2020, um, people that have allergies, they have runny nose, they have this cough and it's like, well, gosh, is this COVID, right? And it probably was allergies, but you didn't know because at the time you didn't fully understand the cause. And so therefore you were only diagnosing yourself with the symptoms. Imagine this being the way, did, you know, healthcare was done for most of human history, for most of human history, you are diagnosing symptoms or understanding symptoms because you don't fully understand causes. What, uh, what now? All right, let's talk about some other things that, that uh, occurred and then maybe we will, maybe we'll stop it. Uh, we'll see, we'll see where we get to. So let's talk first about the sanitary movement and the sanitarians. 
because of the Russian flu, right? One of the things that occurs that we should all be thankful for is the rise of something known as the sanitary movement. Now, the sanitarians might have been a bit much for their day, and maybe they, you know, got into areas of expertise that they weren't really experts in. But really what the sanitarians do that's very influential and very important for us is they introduced a sort of wide-scale acceptance of a public health infrastructure, health board, health departments. In other words, they, these sanitarians, were emphasizing being hygienic, being clean, washing hands, covering coughs. All that's part of the sanitarian movement that occurs in the late 1800s, the late 19th century. And it's trying to convince people that, hey, the way we've traditionally lived our lives and, you know, the, the way we've traditionally thought about medicine, we maybe need to, to, to change that a bit because we need to we need to accept that, hey, they're experts, you know, they're health boards and health departments and they can actually help us be safe in our communities. So that's just one little note here as we continue on in the text is to remember the sanitary movement because it is beginning to introduce, you know, being hygienic, being clean, making safe and healthy choices, all right? And this would lead to the creation of things like health boards and health departments to, you know, to say, hey, when you're in public, you should cover your cough. That's one recommendation you can give, which isn't like, you know, a mind-blowing idea for us now, but is a practice that had to be part of um, a, a part of society or a standard part of society at some point in time. Okay. Why is the flu so complicated? Why is the flu so complicated? And this will get us into our discussion of the coming pandemic of 1918. First, just like lots of viral diseases, there are many different strains. There are many different strains and the disease is always evolving and changing. Our biggest fear right now related to COVID in our sort of what we think is a post-pandemic world, right? is that the disease doesn't mutate in such a way that we don't have protection from it. Right now, the good news is, is that all the vaccines appear to be guarding against these strains, um, at least in terms of the, the, the most negative consequence, which is death, all right? And the second most negative consequence, which is um, hospitalization. So that's the good news. But what we need to know about any disease is that it's constantly changing and evolving. And because the strains change, you know, your, your treatment for that one strain may not be the best treatment for that second strain. Um, so every year during flu season, there are different, there are typically different strains of the flu. And usually if you go to your Walgreens or your CVS and get tested for it, they're going to tell you which strain you have in the event that you have it. Okay. Secondly, um, the reason why the influenza is very tricky is again, something like we saw with COVID, it produced various varying symptoms in patients. All right varying symptoms in patients. So when we had a lot more data about COVID, they began to track like, what is the symptom that most likely occurs if you have COVID? And so I think when it was all said and done, like a fever was part of that. So like if you had a fever, like that was a symptom that tended to present itself in almost all COVID patients, all the way down to something like pink eye, which was a symptom that produced in a handful of patients, statistically speaking. You know, and then after a fever, it might've been a, a cough, all right? And then from there, somewhere in the middle, it might've been losing your sense of smell or your sense of taste. These were symptoms that presented themselves in some patients, but not all. 
most all patients ran a fever, but there were a few that didn't. Very few patients contracted pink eye, but some did, all right? Flu in this regard was similar. There were some things that presented themselves, something like a fever, for example, but it, in other patients, it might've been nausea. In other patients, it might've been um, a, a dry cough. And so in a world where we are treating symptoms, remember, we don't quite understand causes yet. In a world where we're, we're treating symptoms, this becomes something that's quite tricky to deal with. How then do we respond? All right. Late 1800s, early 1900s, we do have, we're beginning to have a notion of modern medicine. The word for modern medicine in our context is allopathic treatment. Allopathic treatment is where we go to a doctor, someone with training, and that person with training gives us advice, techniques, or some sort of medicine or some, some sort of something to heal disease. So allopathic treatment is that step towards modern medicine. All right. Homeopathic treatment, on the other hand, is the way that we've done medicine for a long time. These are remedies that we find in the home place, remedies that are passed down from families, remedies that are passed down in the culture. So, you know, when you are sick and grandma recommends a chicken noodle soup, that's a homeopathic treatment. You go online, you go on Facebook and someone's selling essential oils that will cure your migraines. That's a homeopathic treatment, right? These are treatments and we're not, we're not saying that they're, they're all bad or they're all wrong or you shouldn't, you know, try them or it might, or they might, or might not work for you. But typically we don't have a lot of evidence to support those particular treatments. When, uh, when I stayed home from school and my grandmother took care of me, she would, um, when I was sick, for example, she would put, uh, um, crush up ice and she would put, uh, uh, cherry syrup and mix it with, uh, with Coke. And it's basically cherry Coke is what it was. And that is the thing that you would take to settle your stomach. That's the thing that would work. That's homeopathic treatment. All right. This is a remedy that my grandmother found that, that, uh, that tended to work for young children. And maybe it did work. Maybe it didn't. Maybe there's a scientific reason why it might work in some, but maybe there's a scientific reason why it might not work in others. Okay. Um, we certainly know what, what carbonation can do to your stomach or, you know, what, what sweets can do and all that. Anyway, the point is, is in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there is still a contest, a dispute between, you know, going to the doctor and getting someone with expertise to treat you and give you advice and knowing that grandma's always had the right recipe, right? That grandma's always had the right remedy to help you out. Um, as we go throughout the book, we'll see some other cases of where people begin to reject modern medicine in or allopathic treatments in favor of more homeopathic uh, remedies. So there's public confusion about the disease, about the symptoms, about the causes, what best to do. Should we be frightened? Should we be cautious? Should we be complacent? Um, you don't have to be frightened if you understand the disease, but you don't fully understand it, so it's scary. You should be cautious, but cautious about what? Cautious about ever leaving your home? Cautious about interacting with people? Cautious about going to this particular place rather than that particular place? Be complacent? Probably not. But if you don't know how to act, then maybe, you know, th there's that moment in time where you, when we this happens to all of us, you don't know what to do. So sometimes you just kind of ignore it, right? You ignore the problem because you're like, well, I don't know how to solve it. So I'll just ignore it, right? Probably also not a good so solution.
the coming pandemic of 1918. This is just a, we'll wrap this up and then we will, um, we'll move on to uh, chapter two on Thursday. Better public health situation in 1918 than in the late, late 1800s, but perhaps there's a bit too much confidence. We'll see how this plays out. Should one deal with the flu and get treatment or seek to avoid it? This was a huge question related to COVID. Okay, should we, you know, quote unquote, shut things down and deal with um, the disease or should we seek to avoid it, right? The decision that we made, at least for the first initial months, was to avoid it, right? This is what, this is what lockdowns and closing schools and limiting business hours and masks and social distancing was all about, about avoiding the disease, not contracting it at all, okay? We're going to learn more about the military. Um, you know, the military was going to be a great test case. We'll learn, in fact, where the name the Spanish flu comes from. Uh, hint, it does not originate in Spain. It originates in Kansas uh, in a military encampment. Okay. And then lastly, concerns about domestication of the disease. Um, once a disease is domesticated, people learn to live with it. And this can, of course, be troubling because if you learn to live with a disease, then it just continues to circulate and it can harm your most vulnerable people. And there are a lot of vulnerable people in the case of the Spanish flu. Let's stop here. I'll check in with you again on Thursday where we'll start chapter two. Good luck with your exams. I hope it went well. And I'll see you again tomorrow.